This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the episode today, I shouldn't say that, I should say our guest on the podcast today because uh, we have our co-host for the podcast, Joe Stang, managing editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Welcome, hey Joe. Hi, thanks. Uh, our guest on the podcast today is Florian Kaplent of Urban Chestnut Brewing Company in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to the podcast, Thank Florian. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Florian has a long and storied brewing career and uh, has worked for a number of breweries in Europe as well as the United States. We're going to talk about some of that history and some of what he has learned through that process. We're going to talk uh, quite a bit about lagers, and I think we'll get into ingredients like hops, malt, and other things in the process. So stay tuned for that. But first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. GD is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large scale production brewery. They are big enough to produce and small enough to care. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game with their premium craft juice blends. Whether you're planning a passion fruit Kolsch, Concord Sour, Mango Lager, or other fruity brew, Old Orchard can supply you with the consistent product at affordable prices. Their blends are packed with real fruit and natural flavors with no sugar added and other weird fillers you'd find in knockoff brands. With the rising demand for fruity seltzers and brews, the time is ripe to grow your relationship with the right juice supplier. Get your Old Orchard sample kit today with a free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Florian, talk to me a little bit about your brewing history, uh, how you've moved through the industry and uh, gotten to where you are now, uh, and a, a little quick history arc of brewing, if you will. <laughs> so I'm originally from Germany, <clears throat> grew up in a small town fairly close to Munich, um, and uh, started my career in a local brewery very close to my parents' house that I used to uh, ride my bike to. Um, initially, just delivering beer, helping out on the packaging line, very non-fun things, but decided quickly that that's something um, that I wanted to do. I was always interested in chemistry and bio- biology, and the combination of that chemistry, biology, with the artsy uh, aspect of brewing, and the community definitely appealed to me, and that's kind of how I got into the into the game. And then I started an apprenticeship at that brewery, stayed there for a couple of years, and then um, moved around a little bit. Uh, actually, got a job at a brewery in Connecticut because I wanted to get out a little bit. Came back to Germany, uh, got my brewing science degree at the University of Munich Weinstephan, and then uh, after that. Got a job at a startup in London, England. Worked there for a couple of years and then finally made it to the States working for Anheuser Busch for about eight years. That's kind of the very, very brief. And so, uh, so, why make the jump to Urban Chestnut Brewing and launch this new brewing business uh, with your partner? I think I had always had a dream. When, when I was in, in the uh, uh, trade school, the brewing school, we had a small brewing system and uh, being able to create a recipe and then brewing the beer yourself and having total Im- influence over where things are going to go was kind of 
a fun thing and having my own brewery obviously it entails a lot of other aspects sure, as well sure. but uh, that was always kind of in the back of back of my mind even when i was working at anheuser-busch and then uh, the opportunity opportunity came up um and we just started working on a business plan and finally made the jump after kind of convincing our wives that that was the wise thing to do. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you know, as you started thinking about a brewery, you know, obviously one of the kind of core components of that is, you know, who's your customer and what beers are you going to make for them? Uh, as you started to envision Urban Chestnut Brewing, um, you know, how, how did that take direction? Probably very selfishly considering that I'm I'm one of the consumers one of the customers <laughs> kind of designing the uh, the beers for that I'm a, I'm a fan of very drinkable beers not nothing too out of the extra or extraordinary in terms of ABV or uh, bitterness I, I, I like five percent four five six percent beers that you can drink a few of <clears throat> and that our, our approach was kind of driven by that we also realizing that I come from Germany and that a lot of people are gonna see us as the German brewery which I think a lot of people still do or do to this day. We didn't want to just focus on that. So we came up with the uh, with the creative license for ourselves that we're able to do pretty much anything. Um, European style beers, but also more exp experimental stuff. And um, at that point, kind of just try things and then see what, what the consumer was looking for. And to this point, I think that's kind of the, the how, how we're coming up with beers and, and, and new creations it's a lot of it is driven by what people are looking for we actually have a little pilot brewery where we try to get people's feedback and kind of observing what people are drinking and in, in when they go out and then just base it off that let's talk a little bit about that because that is one of the more interesting approaches that urban chestnut has had it's the uh, herb the uh, urban research brewery yeah mm -hmm. uh, talk to me a little bit about how that works so we have a tiny brew house um, in a what used to be a tapas restaurant right across from our main production brewery. Uh, when the space became empty, we thought, huh, why don't we just start another project? We don't have enough stuff going on in our lives. <laughs> and uh, put that small brewing system there. Our chef is a uh, fanatic when it comes to creating everything uh, in, from scratch. So the idea was to basically have a pizza place where we make everything, the dough, the pizza sauce. It's really, sausage. It's really good pizza. Really, it's and it's New York style, so that's non-controversial versus St. Louis style pizza, which is divisive. Sorry, go on. Yes. Um, so combining the pizza because everybody likes pizza uh, with a uh, experimental brewery where we basically have people come in, we create surveys uh, every couple of weeks. We have a new survey. Could be cider, could be beer, could be coffee, even or spirits. So it's not necessarily just beer focused. Uh, but we create the survey with two, three, four new experimental things and then have people log into our uh, server and, and give us feedback on those uh, products, on those, on those beverages. And based so, on that, uh, we have had some, some uh, feedback that we took and then actually yeah. uh, made some changes for, for products so that we the released. Customer comes in, maybe, maybe they have some pizza, maybe they don't, but they basically get to participate in a, a blind tasting, essentially. Yep. And then they share their feedback, whatever. And I think one of the interesting things about it is that they're they're not trained judges or anything most of the time. So you're getting real consumer feedback of that's in a way maybe more valuable than than uh, you know sensory evaluation from from trained brewers and so on. I don't know how, I, how has I, that worked out for you. Yeah, I, th I think so because we we're obviously all very biased. We we have our own little 
thoughts and, 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 and biases towards certain flavors and what we want to see in a, in a beer. And uh, just directly talking to the consumer and not even giving them any answer, they have to really come up with their own uh, thoughts on, on, on what they think about these things. And I think that's definitely helped. Uh, a lot of it is fine tuning. If we have a new uh, beer, just kind of gauging, is it bitter enough? Is it not bitter enough? Is the balance right? Is the color right? Just kind of fine-tuning things is always very interesting, and we've used that several times for releases that uh, happen on a larger scale. What uh, you know, are, I find that process interesting and actually fascinating. What um, are there any examples of things that you've learned that may have run counter to your intuition, where you thought that consumers might approach things one way, and uh, their feedback will actually uh, you know pointed towards something different? Yeah. <laughs> It's it's subtle things. One sure. one one example would be our Rattler that we released, I think, a couple of years ago. So it's a it's a uh, lemon and uh, grapefruit Rattler lager um, soda blend. I guess is probably the best description. Sure. Uh, figuring out the exact sweetness level of that, how much soda to add, how much flavor to add. Um, I don't have a good gauge myself and say. Yeah. Hey, and then if you talk to somebody in the brewery, they will tell you one thing. If you talk to somebody else, they'll tell you some exact opposite. So it's really figuring out a broad number of responses and seeing, hey, what are people looking for? What do they like? What do they, what do they prefer? And just taking our opinions completely out of the equation. What, what, what direction did that point for you? Do you find they wanted it sweeter or less sweet? It was actually less sweet. I thought Interesting. it was. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So people are more interested in something sessionable, which is, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, building character in beers. I, I, you know, as you launch a new brewery and you have this both creative and classic German, you know, kind of approach, uh, you face this next question, which is how do we build a character for our beers that, uh, says what we are as a brewery? Um, uh, you know, every classic brewery in Germany has their flavor, you know, and you ask American brewers that go visit and they, you know, can pinpoint, you know, which uh, breweries they can, you know, get specific flavor elements from because they have these kinds of characters. As you're then working from scratch with a, you know, blank canvas, how do you as a brewer then start to think about what that character should look like for urban chestnut lagers, for example? I guess that's where my bias and my, my opinions that I've collected over the last yeah. 20 years come into place. I have certain ideas of how I see a beer, um, how I want it to be. I have certain ingredients that I like, and we try to use them as much as possible for certain things. And from that point on, uh, I've been in the business long enough that I can kind of sort of predict where things are going to go based on a recipe that I write. So... But it all comes down to sessionability, I guess, although I don't really like that word, but creating a beer that um, can be consumed in a session with friends on your own, uh, where you drink two, three, four. Of course, if it's a, a IPA with seven, eight percent, it's not going to be four, but uh, we, have a, we have a, maybe one good example is we have a Russian Imperial Stout that... I really enjoy and uh, we bottled it again this year and I find myself drinking a couple bottles of that every every once in a while at home it's just nice and flavorful and it's not overpowering it still has 8% ABV but it's uh it's just nicely balanced and, and a nice beer and that's 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 kind of what I'm trying to do I want something that's very nicely balanced I don't want any extremes I want a 
I don't want to say perfect beer, but something that's enjoyable. Sure, sure. Um, you say that there are specific ingredients that you enjoy working with just because, or is that flavor component? Is that because of the way that they work in a brew house? Um, talk to me about some of uh, some of those specific ingredients that you really find showing up and that might give some of that character to your beers. When it comes to hops, we uh, have a or we have a hop variety that we use quite a bit uh, for our lagers. Hallertau Mittelfruh is kind of for me. That's one of my my all-time favorites that can fit into a very low ABV, low, uh, low, low, low impact lager, just kind of in the background, but it can also play a really significant role in a Pilsner where it's very dominant and uh, really shines. Um, it can also be used in an IPA, so it really has a lot of different functions. Right? What do you look for when you're uh, selecting Hallertau Middle Fruit? Uh, we have a grower that we've worked for with over the last 10 years he's got a family farm so mm-hmm. we buy his hops oh, okay. predominantly uh, rely on his expertise to to really uh, grow the hops and i visit throughout the year talk to him go through the fields uh, look at the hops that's that's always a fun fun thing um yeah I, I just just knowing because you can't be there every single minute of sure, the growing sure. process and you just have to rely on good people to be able to passionate people that that uh deliver that that product that you're looking for and did you choose to work with him because of the flavor of his hops specifically or because you had a great working relationship with him it was kind of a weird coincidence yeah. his he and his brother are hockey fans and they all of a sudden showed up in our brewery they had i'm not i still don't know exactly why they came to st <laughs> louis to watch hockey but they yeah. decided they had to make a trip to st louis to watch the blues about 10 years ago and then uh we started talking and yeah all of a sudden there were these two germans in the in the beer hall or in, in, in our brewery and then uh, from that point on we just kind of started talking and, and ultimately ended up buying their hops and we've been buying hops from him since it's an interesting concept to think that you know something like that relationship and that odd uh you know uh incident of, of running in them could you know, have such an impactful way, uh, impact, such a larger impact on the way that the flavor of your beers may express because of the ingredients that they use. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's actually a nice story and more than a, a hyper-technical uh, uh, scientific approach to it. Talk to me a little bit about malt and then yeast also in this kind of process as you're creating a formative idea, you know, for the, the base of your lagers. To me, less is more. And that's especially true when it comes to malt. Uh, we use base malt. We import our own malt from a couple of malt houses in Germany. Again, family-owned businesses that we can rely on to deliver high quality that specifically also work with farmers in the region. So nothing gets imported from uh, China or Brazil in terms of the, the raw materials that they source. Um, so base malt... And then depending on what beer style we're using, we use maybe one or two specialty malts. That sounds like a very expensive process to then import it yourself by working with small family malsters. It's probably a little bit more expensive, but we specifically look for barley varieties that are grown in Europe and haven't really found anything that comes close in terms of flavor here in the U.S., unfortunately. Um, but we import container loads, so it actually is, it's, it's surprisingly affordable, huh. and, and the logistics are amazing behind it, and they work pretty well. It's, I'm always amazed. That- Let's talk a little bit about those barley varieties. I'm curious about that, you know, and the kind of flavor contributions that you're looking for, um, and, and that brew house performance that'll go along with them. Hmm, this is where it becomes very non-scientific for me, I guess. <laughs> I don't I guess it's I'm looking for a specific breadiness and complex malt flavors that I 
don't find in, 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 in a lot of the American uh, barley varieties that are grown here. When you look at the areas where barley is grown in, let's call it North America, because it's obviously not just the US, there's a lot of uh, barley being grown in Canada, the climate and the soil is quite different from, from Central Europe. So I think that has a pretty major impact right. on, on flavor and uh, how those develop throughout the growing season. And I, yeah, I, I think that the complex brightiness, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Is there uh, anything to do with the modification levels, uh, you know, in the malt that you, uh, that you're looking for? Uh, probably, I guess most malts these days are so highly modified right. that, um, almost need to bring that down a little bit uh, i'm not sure that german malts are necessarily less modified but i think less modification that gives us a little bit more play and wiggle room in the brew house is probably better german uh brewers always look for very clear beers filtered brilliant clear and we are not worried about that at all our consumer is really not fussy about turbidity in in our beers so we don't really strive for that at all. And I think that allows us to retain a lot more flavor and um, create using those barley varieties and those malts then kind of uh, helps to preserve that flavor and really bring that out in, in the beers that we make. I think this is a good time to talk about this Vickle because uh, this is, uh, it's, uh, well, it's basically your flagship beer. It's an unfiltered Hellas, and I, I live in the St. Louis area, and it's just a joy to have this so available. You can walk into burger joints and barbecue joints, and the dive bars sometimes will have a Zwickel on tap. Uh, and I don't, I mean, I don't know how many brewers realize that this beer that's so widely available around St. Louis is a product of a decoction, one of my favorite subjects. Uh, so can you talk about the decoction a little bit, and, and maybe also in connection with the modification of the malt, which the, you know, the conventional wisdom of American brewers, I think, is why do a decoction? You don't need to do it, and but maybe there are benefits. So, to me, and the benefits are not like it's not hitting you over the head, but it's it's very subtle. But again, it kind of contributes to that to that breadiness, to that complex malt flavor. The uh, Maillard reaction that happens during the boiling of the mash, I think, definitely contributes. Definitely, we pick up color we pick up that complexity through boiling of that boiling process. And I think that that overall just um, helps contribute to the complexity of the beer. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Talking about a very nondescript, if you want to say that 5% lager, not very hoppy, not very malty, just nicely balanced. But I, I do think when you look for certain aspects, you can find some of the hop characteristics in that beer. You can find some of the malt characteristics. You just have to look for it. But it also allows you to drink it two, three, four, five, whatever you choose in, in a setting, and it, it's not overwhelming. And I think that balance is kind of fun, and, and, and I really enjoy that, being able to find those subtleties, but also kind of, if you don't want to look for them, you don't have to, and they don't, don't, uh, they don't, they're not that present. I think it's also worth mentioning that your website, a lot of the beers have basically homebrewing instructions almost it's almost a recipe including for the zwickel and mentioning temperatures and ingredients and everything so it could be worth going to the website for people who want to try to take a crack at sure. these yeah i mean as we don't we don't have many secrets <laughs> <laughs> 
building character, you know, in these small beers uh, is a matter of doing a lot of small things and not big things, you know, that, uh, you know, it is small things like, can you, you know, eke out a little bit more of a, you know, a character in this base, very light base malt using some processes like this. Um, let's maybe talk, uh, you know, about uh, fermentation in this process, then how do you eke out some of those kind of small flavor additions through the fermentation process, uh, not just through yeast choice, but also through the entire cellaring process? Maybe going back to my history a little bit, I was lucky enough to be able to run the Anna's Bush Yeast Culture Center for a couple of years before I left to start Urban Chestnut. That really helped me a lot to understand certain uh, yeah. interesting things about yeast. And I think still the biggest aspect is to have healthy yeast, to have the pitch rates being high enough and have yeast growth. After that, everything kind of just does, runs on its own for the most part. Just kind of that the start of the fermentation process is really, really critical. And obviously yeast choice is important, but having healthy yeast, having yeast that's present in uh, sufficient numbers for the for the amount of wort that you're pitching it into and it's that's really critical and our biggest issues always arise when we pitch yeast from a tank and there wasn't enough left over and then fermentation stalls out and you have a tank that just doesn't finish out and you don't get that crisp finish and you don't get that refined flavor and um, again to me that that's the most critical thing having the pitch rate right at the beginning and then as, as i said after that it really just you just kind of monitor the process but there's not much else you can do at this what, what do you use to determine right pitch rate well we, we just do lab tests we, we do cell counting um throughout the process uh we try to um we have our own yeast propagation starting from scratch so we have a minus 80 freezer a liquid nitrogen freezer in the lab we pull out uh, yeast cultures grow those up depending on what we need i mean we, we have two to three yeast cultures going every every week for new batches that we're doing so just controlling the process from start to finish making sure that in the yeast propagator the plant propagator that we have yeast that's highly viable and and vitality is high and then pitching that that that's critical for our process Sounds like you did learn a few things from uh, your experience working for uh, just world's largest brewer. Just, just a couple. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about, we can uh, shift gears here in a minute, but uh, but first, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewery science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skills you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, did you know that breweries that serve food see an increase in revenue of 1.8x? Second Kitchen is a food tech startup that connects local breweries to iconic neighborhood restaurants to help provide your brewery with food experiences to keep your customers in your tap room longer. Second Kitchen provides the technology, support, custom menus, and more, all at no cost to your brewery. I want to ask about the brewery in Germany um, and how that's going. I was lucky enough to visit Wohnsach a few years ago and go to the Hop Museum. And actually, it was harvest time, so I'm just walking around the streets and you can smell <laughs> the hops in the air. It's wonderful. And visit the brewery there where you're doing some beers with open fermentation. And, and uh, can you talk about how things are going there and how the brewery's been embraced locally? 
it's another one of those projects that's kind of happened overnight. We actually, I talked to my hop girlfriend in that he, he lives close to, to Volnsach, uh, has a small hop farm there. And he mentioned this brewery that just had gone bankrupt and that's up for auction. And um, I figured, yeah, I mean, let's take a look at it, see if we can get some equipment. And then eventually came up with the idea that maybe everything is installed. We'll just leave everything as is, start production up again and see how things go. And that's kind of what we did. It was about four or five years ago. And uh, it's been fun because we made the choice to use our American urban chestnut name and put that on the label. It's not extremely prominent, but it's definitely there. And that was definitely a little bit of a risk in a fairly small town in, in conservative Bavaria to kind of show up as the Americans that now tell the Germans how to make beer in a way. But we were pretty subtle about that and had a guy that um, was local to brew the beer and I can still pull out my Bavarian uh, dialect if I need to. And kind of that approach really worked and it's now the local beer. It's It's been very fun to follow that along and uh, we had actually a very good last year. We just introduced a Helles uh, for the first time and that's been going really, really well. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun project and allows me to go back every every couple months or so as well. So it's a nice nice way of being able to go home and observing that that process. So operating an actual brewery in Germany as well as your brewery in St. Louis. Yes, three breweries in St. Louis, right? Yes. There's the Grove, the Beer Hall one, and the, the Midtown, brewery. and and the, now the Pilot, the the research brewery. Is there any learning that goes, you know, back and forth between those two? You know, things that you may pick up at one that you apply to the other or, and vice versa? I think one of the big things in terms of sales was the local approach that we took in St. Louis. Uh, we didn't want to go out and blanket the Midwest with our beer. I think we took a very slow and measured approach to start in St. Louis and to kind of grow it from there, realizing that going far away from your brewery just gets tougher and tougher to sell your beer. And we're still kind of that way. We sell about four to five hours outside of St. Louis, but the vast majority of beer gets sold in the St. Louis Metro. And same thing is true for Germany. We didn't really try to sell beer in far away places. The vast majority gets sold even in a small town with about 15,000 people or so. So we have a couple of liquor stores there that sell an amazing amount of beer that you would never believe it's by the palate and people just just take it out there the model there is a little bit different from from the u.s but uh that local approach is definitely something that that we tried over there um yeah i mean i think they they're very different in a way but also very similar the market is different but uh all i think when it just comes down to selling a high quality product and and believing in what you're doing and i think people understand that and that's that's I think has been the success or the reason for the success. I saw the open fermenters in, in Wonsack. Are you doing any open fermentation in St. Louis? We are not. No, we have one little tank, but for the, the most of our beers is being uh, made in, in, in uni tanks, basically. And the beers are naturally carbonated, right? You're not forced carbonating. It's from the fermentation. Yeah. In, in both places. Mm-hmm. So we, in, in, in Wonsack, we have a second secondary tank maturation tank system that, where beer gets transferred into, then naturally carbonates there under pressure. And St. Louis, we just uh, close off the tank to carbonate in tank after primary fermentation is kind of almost complete. When I was uh, uh, visiting the brewery probably four years ago, uh, I, we were in the one of the tap rooms and noticed a group of older gentlemen 
who had driven Ubered over from the other brewery to the original tap room uh, because he didn't have Stantish on tap <laughs> at, at the uh, at the beer hall. And I found that, you know, and so they all walked in together and they told the bartender why they were there. And it was that sole reason they just, you know, they found it so necessary to drink the one beer that they were going to drink that they would go to the other tap room. Talk to me about how you build an idea of a, a brand. I mean, this is a Pilsner. I mean, uh, you know, it's a, a beer in a town that's known for that kind of style of beer. And yet yours is such a draw. Um, how do you differentiate and how do you build a, you know, this identity for your Pilsner in a, a city of lager drinkers, uh, you know, uh, who have plenty of access to these styles? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to the same philosophy. Uh, good ingredients. We use only noble hops in that beer. Um, it, it, I, I just had some discussions with some hop, uh, hop, hop sellers, hop people in the last couple of days, and we were drinking Stammtisch. We didn't have it on draft, so I grabbed some from uh, the front retail area in bottles, and we, we drank that. It's, it is kind of interesting. I, I don't, I'm, and I'm not sure that I totally understand it either because it's not a not necessarily easy beer to drink. It's quite bitter, so for the average drinker, it could be off-putting. I think. So I'm not sure that I totally understand that phenomenon, and I think we could probably do a better job at marketing. And I was thinking about that over the last couple of days that maybe our approach should be a little bit more mass market driven in terms of the. Uh, branding of, of the beer i'm not sure that it's very approachable when you see the the bottles itself so but yeah i'm not totally sure how that works but we have several people that just and the brewers all drink that too so it's interesting it, but could, I, it mean it could be the bitterness and the hop flavor in there that's that's doing it i mean it, for me that's what yeah. i love about it so yeah no you, you're probably right it's 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 we i always assume that high bitterness necessarily means that it's not something that people want and and, and like but because humans to me at least Bitter is not always something they look they 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 look out for, but they look for. But maybe that's exactly what it is. Maybe also the the goalposts for bitterness have moved, haven't they? IPA sort of got us used to more bitterness, and now there's they're getting less and less bitter, so we have to find the bitterness from somewhere. Maybe I'm a little bit. One of my former colleagues from Anders and Bush was kind of the, the hop guru. He told me a story that he had talked to his counterpart at uh, Coors at the time, and they were just kind of talking about how the bitterness levels had decreased over the years. And they were saying, why, why did that happen? And the guy from Coors was like, well, we just keep measuring your IBU levels in your beers, and we base it off that. And he was saying, <laughs> we do the same. So it's just kind of this, this, <laughs> this progress of lowering IBU levels across the country based on really nothing, not, not necessarily consumer demand, because the consumer doesn't know any better. Just thinking that that's what the competitor that's is doing, the, yeah, and so they yeah, have to do it yeah. too. You know, all bitterness is not the same, though. You know, there are different qualities of bitterness, you know, both provided by you know, hops, by you know, your IBU goals, as well as uh, the ways that you add that bitterness in and timing. Um, talk to me a little bit about how, you know, your goals, say for IBUs for a beer like Stantisch, uh, you know, Pilsner, and then how you go about, uh, you know, adding that into, you know, the, the, the boil process or after the boil. I, I'm not familiar with what that looks like for you. Uh, how do you kind of create uh, the exact profile of bitterness that you're looking for? I think it's more than just the hops, obviously high quality hops. And as I said, only certain varieties um, that that we use. We don't use any any what's known as high alpha varieties for those beers. Um, that's also something I learned at, at AB that um, 
the nicer bitterness comes from hop varieties that don't have the high alpha content. I think it's just a nicer combination that gives you a nicer, ple more pleasant bitterness. But then also the impact of fermentation, um, the pressure, uh, sorry, the pH drop that happens during fermentation is very important. We did a study on different pH levels, uh, at the same bitterness level, and it's amazing how different we perceive bitterness at different pH levels of beer. So that has a huge impact on how that bitterness comes across. If the beer didn't finish out, the pH drop wasn't quite what we were looking for in our recipe. You're not going to get that same clean bitterness necessarily. So it's it's more to it than just adding hops to the to the to the wort. Uh, I'm curious about that. You know, is it's not a linear scale with pH and uh, you know uh, perception of uh, of bitterness? No, it's it's quite interesting when and it's you're talking 0 0.1, 0.2 uh, pH units where the difference is actually perceptible. And really, I think by adding dry hopped. Dry hopping by adding hops as dry hops, you are increasing your pH, and you're gonna change the perception of that bitterness. So, 40 IBUs is not necessarily 40 IBUs from a from uh, the way you perceive it. So, it's, it was very interesting to look at that, and obviously, the the matrix, the type of beer that you're using for that, is also very important and makes a difference. But controlling pH, beer pH, is also very very important. That again comes back to the fermentation process where do you like that to be for that expression of, of hops and bitterness in your uh, your lagers we, we try to be between four and four two for our finished beer to be, for for the vast majority of our beers for the lighter lagers and then in, in terms of kind of ibu goal for uh, for a pilsner what, what, what do you find the kind of comfortable place for that uh, probably between 30 and 40 that's hmm. probably well it's funny too going to Germany and you drink pilsners and there you can't really find anything or very I shouldn't say anything but it's very rare that you can find a beer that has very clear hop character and that kind of bitterness it's it's most breweries have lowered I, uh, IBUs over the years and, and uh, you're probably closer to 25 now across the board maybe you We've had the discussion, Joe. I think you, you you don't necessarily agree with me. Maybe I don't drink enough different beers. <laughs> well, that was possible. also I was also living in Berlin in the north, where there's a lot of sort of cleanly bitter pills, um, not necessarily with hop character or hop flavor, but seem to be they're bitter beers. They're at least perceived that way for whatever reason. Yeah. And in the, in the south, I think. Bavarian Pils is like one of the best beers that Bavarians don't drink because <laughs> there's Riga Helles and Weissbier and, uh, but there's more hop flavor and character and sometimes I think that would soften the bitterness but of course we all have our favorites and some of the in my opinion the best ones are up there 35, 40 IBUs so is that kind of what you were modeling Stammtisch after or is it just sort of your taste? Yeah I think it's the I think for Pils it just needs to be higher right that's to that to me it just needs to be there if, if, it, if it's at 25 to me that's not a Pils that's what I was taught, and that's what I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll follow. Um, yeah, I, I think that's in a way. I think it's a classic German pills, although that exact version may or may not be in existence right now. When you try, um, obviously Pilsner is a brewer's beer. American brewers love to drink Pilsner and lagers, and and, and more of them are brewing them now and looking, particularly I think after the German styles. When you try the lagers made by American brewers, home brewers too. What, what are they missing sometimes? What are they not quite nailing? I think com coming back to fermentation, that's my biggest pet peeve that if you don't have 
healthy and, and happy yeast and you pitch something and yeah it'll start fermentation but it never is going to finish out where it needs to finish out i think that's the biggest issue that you just don't get those crisp beers because of issues that happen during fermentation and it happens a lot i mean i've, I've had a lot of beers that where that's just not done right i guess mm -hmm. so healthy pitches attention to temperatures patience yeah I think, it, I mean, it's really not that complicated. It really is not that complicated. And yet it is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. Beyond the lager program for Urban Chestnut, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, this other side, the creative side of, uh, of the brewery, where you are making some more, you know, American-inspired uh, ideas of craft beer, uh, at, you know, IPAs, uh, other kinds of uh, you know, more American classic uh, craft beer styles, and then trying to kind of push that creative side, but also push that creative element without going as far as uh, you know, some American brewers have been taking it as of late. Um, talk to me about kind of riding that line of creativity uh, so that your beers have a larger appeal, um, but are still uh, differentiated from you know, other uh, breweries in the market. The one thing that is nice with the nice, nice benefit that we have, we have two large outlets and then the, the pilot brewery as well that allow us, allow us to make beers that aren't necessarily always going to be, um, we're going to have mass appeal necessarily. So just kind of putting them on and seeing what people are looking for, not necessarily even with an herb survey where we get formal responses, but just kind of talking to the bartenders and seeing what they like, what they try to push and what people are up for. Um, yeah, we're just keeping our eyes open, trying different things. Uh, tr we do a lot of trials with different hop varieties uh, that aren't necessarily ever going to go into larger scale production, but anywhere from like 15 to 20 barrels, a smaller batch that just gets sold in one of our tap rooms um, and just kind of playing around and seeing, seeing what could work and what could be applicable. Again, not necessarily applicable tomorrow, but maybe one, two, three, four, five years from now, just to kind of see what's out there and not totally miss any trend that could be there. But we're, cer we're certainly not chasing trends. Um, I mean, I, I think we need to believe in the beers that we make if if i don't and, and and we don't it's it's a tougher sell for myself it's not necessarily wouldn't necessarily be a tougher sell to the public i guess but if i don't stand behind my products then i have a problem with that it's certainly nice and a luxury to be able to have enough on-premise sales to move a 15 to 20 barrel batch of something experimental a lot of breweries can't sell that kind of volume out of a tap room. Um, that does seem to be a little bit of a strategic advantage having these locations to be able to kind of play with. Uh, having said that, you also you know you make an IPA, you make a uh, you know other kinds of beers that are put out there and packaged out in the mass market. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you envisioned uh, you know as you built this you know this IPA and I, actually you have multiple IPAs uh, you know in the market for that matter. Um, talk to me about how you create think about those uh, and have thought about how to build an identity around that in a craft beer market that's filled with IPAs. Yeah, I think I have to come back to my philosophy of sessionability again. Uh, even a 7% beer with 40, 50, 60 IBUs, I think can have qualities that ultimately lead to sessionability. Clean bitterness, um, 
an appealing hop character. Uh, I personally, some of the hop flavors, hop aromas I get, and a lot of the newer varieties to me are kind of oniony and garlicky, and I'm not a big fan of that. Some of the hazy IPAs are very harsh and, and kind of lingering, and again, I'm not a huge fan of that. So it's kind of navigating around that. But yeah, it is it is very hard to come up with an identity because I'm sure there's more to it than just having a good beer. That's obviously hundreds of good IPAs on the market and um, finding a recipe. I think there's more to it than what we can do as a brewer. I think it's, there's a lot of marketing. There's a lot of um, getting, getting, getting the word out, some hype. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the, what the total answer is on, on when, that. When you were designing, you know, your kind of flagship IPA, what's going through your head? What hops are, are speaking to you? You know, what kind of process, what kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, flavor profile were you kind of seeking out in that? And how did you craft that with the ingredients that you chose? Uh, before it gets to that, I think there's the reality of running a business where the <laughs> hop market is well is and was tight for certain varieties and you have sure, contracted sure. certain things and you have to use use those varieties so that certainly plays into the recipe creation i think that's probably something that that not a lot of brewers would want to talk about maybe um but there's the reality of running a business if you have a hop and you have two three four or five metric tons of that contracted next year you're going to have to find a home for that somehow so that that certainly plays into that but i i do like the subtlety again not your in your face um, orange or citrus flavor, but kind of a blend of different flavor profiles that all work together well. And for that reason, I think coming up with beers that do use different hop varieties um, to kind of create this blended, nice, balanced beer, that to me is the most appealing. What do some of those blends look like? I'm gonna keep. Uh, <laughs> we, do, we use a lot, a lot of Cascade. Yeah, I think there's okay. there's that's one of the the hop varieties that uh, I, I do quite like. Although it's a little bit more in your face, if you want to call it. Not not compared to some of the newer ones, yeah. I guess, but uh, compared to some of the German uh, classic hop varieties. Uh, so lots of lots of Cascade. I think that's a nice base, a nice um, base for a great balanced IPA. There's some Chinook. Um, we use a little bit of Amarillo and uh, even some of the German hop varieties um, that have been created over the last few years um, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are nice. And you have built some IPAs kind of based on your uh, German hops and, and this kind of, kind of uh, contemporary trend in German hops. Talk to me a little bit about envisioning those and, uh, and building beers around those. It's kind of interesting. The hops coming out of germany those those they call them flavor hops uh, just to differentiate them from the classic aroma hops i'm not sure that they have found a huge following um but there there's some really nice nice hop varieties mandarina for example i think used right that that can produce some can, can produce some really nice beers uh, actually our uh, pale ale in germany is exclusively made with hop varieties that are grown in Hollatau, uh, Mandarina, then Hollatau Cascade. And uh, yeah, they, they, they make a nice, nice fruity, citrusy beer that, that's, that's, that's really nice and, 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 uh, and, and very pleasant to drink. Maybe not as in your face as some of the New Zealand varieties or the varieties coming out of Australia, but overall very nicely balanced. And uh, I think they, they work well in beers. 
Um, are there some specific ways that you use and blend those in order to kind of heighten the characters uh, uh, that they bring to the table? Not necessarily. We really just play around and, and see what works. And um, yeah, there's not a, not, a, not a one single approach. Yeah. From an ingredient perspective, are there some new trends in brewing ingredients uh, that you find exciting? Are there some... Uh, uh, you know whether that's hops, whether that's malts, whether that's uh, even developments in yeast. You know, are there some budding trends that uh, you are excited about and are working on developing? Loggers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's any single trend that that I see as being hugely exciting. I I, I do like different things. I'm not just drinking lagers. I, I, I do like good IPAs. I like uh, even some fruit beers I think are exciting. I like some sour beers. But I think ultimately the volume that's going to be sold is going to be beers that people are going to be able to drink. And there's only so much you can drink of a sour beer. Um, there's only so much you can drink of a 10% Russian Imperial Stout. It's just not lending itself to um, consumption on, on, a, on a larger scale. So we play around with things, but I think classic beers, that to me is the is and was, has been the exciting, most exciting thing. Are there some classic beer styles that you've been able to bring out and release through the brewery and also you know develop your own process toward that you've been excited to learn from and also share with uh, your drinking audience? Smoked beers are a big favorite of mine. Of course, that's not a huge sales success. That's, those are always the ones that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that sit around um, a little bit longer in our, in our tap rooms. Um, Berliner Weiss, I think that's, a, that's an interesting and fascinating beer style that actually surprisingly has a, has a fairly large following. We've kind of been playing with that for several years now, perfecting that a little bit and uh, have released it in cans, have released it in bottles every once in a while. But over the last couple of years, there's definitely there seems to be a following for 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 that specific beer. Urban Chestnut hosts an event dedicated to historical lager recipes. That's about as nerdy as it gets. And can you tell us? I, I love it. That's my kind of nerd. Uh, can you tell us um, how that came about and, and what's that event like? Uh, I was a little skeptical that we would get an audience for that, but we can do things like that where we invite people and as long as we kind of don't go overboard it's it's easy enough to put festi a festival like that on Stan Hieronymus was, was very uh, involved in that in the beginning and I think it was, we were just joking around a little bit we should just do that at some point and we had thought about that before and then we decided to pull it off and come up with some old recipes for loggers and interestingly enough a lot, enough brewers were excited about the idea and then we just put that together but uh, the most exciting thing about it was that people actually showed up, and um, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I was a little bit skeptical, as I said, that we would get enough people to show up, but it was, it was, was, was a fun event. Is that a regular thing? Yeah, we're going to put it on. We actually moved it this year. Uh, we'll move it to November just for some scheduling reasons, and uh, there's so many beer things going on that we thought uh, gives us a little bit more time to, to plan it right. But uh, yeah, we definitely plan to keep that uh, keep that around. Is that event at the at the big beer hall in the Grove? And then what's what's it like when I walk in there? What's you know the 
how, is it everything on tap at the bar or or because I know this other brewers are there too, right? Yeah, currently the way we had set it up is that uh, we had jockey boxes with the beers of other brewers um, kind of spread around the brewery. We're kind of potentially rethinking that. Um, that may or may not happen this year. We'll see. We have a few ideas of how to make this a little bit different, but uh, the idea was initially to just have the brewery opened up for other brewers and, and, and serve their beers during that festival. Has there been anything from that festival or anything sort of of this interest in, in brewing old recipes or historical blog recipes that has uh, that you've decided to produce at the brewery or that's stuck around? Nothing stuck around, but it's always interesting to look at how brewers approach things uh, back then. And, and it's not always easy to, to wrap your mind around that because you don't know exactly what the quality of the raw materials was, what their processes looked like. So interpreting the data that you can find and figuring out what that beer may have tasted like is, is, is not easy. But there was definitely some, some interesting things. Just looking at old recipes and trying to figure out, hey, what were they trying to do here? Your first, your first brewing job was at the Brauerei Erharting, the small one you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and that was a small traditional Bavarian brewery. What kinds of things were you brewing there, and what did you what did you learn from that experience? And what what would you now now if, if a brewer went back there and saw how you were brewing there, how that brewery brews, what would they be surprised about? It was very traditional. Uh, I worked for two, three brewers that had been there for 20, 30 years that were very set in their ways and made sure that I followed those. And I think that approach is, may seem a little pedantic maybe, but the way you roll up your hose at the end of the day in the fermentation cellar and focusing on that, I think that, that, that approach to making sure all those little details are right, that's great. And I, I really enjoy that. And I think ultimately that translates to the quality of the beer. If you focus on those minute, uh, minute little details, I think that ultimately then gives you the thought process to say, hey, all, all, all this has been, uh, you think about all these steps and then ultimately your beer comes out right. What were they brewing there? Hellas, <laughs> lots of Hellas. Yeah. Open fermentation, uh, had their own malt house, which is a little bit unusual. So I got to see all that uh, very classic distribution model where they owned their own pubs, basically, and distributed that on a, on a weekly basis, going different routes into Munich and close to the Alps. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting business model. I think about that a lot where there's no growth per se. You have this very steady business model compared to some of the breweries here, in the, breweries here in the U.S., and we've, certainly we have seen that where you have 5, 10, 15, 20% growth every year, and it's sometimes hard to manage. It's kind of interesting that um, sometimes I, I wonder, should we focus more on, on every little detail, but then you realize you just can't because there's so much other, other stuff going on, but it's kind of a balance to, to kind of take the German approach and then uh, apply that to the existing uh, realities of, of running a business in, in the American craft beer industry. You guys are sort of in that uh, awkward size now where the, the regional breweries are having a tough time in the market that's tightening up. Has that been the case for you guys too? We've, I think our portfolio is a little bit 
different from from other breweries. We're not heavily reliant on on IPAs and and other things. We we do have a lot of loggers, and they they're still growing for us. And we do have some plans to keep continue focusing on that and have some exciting new things coming up this year. Um, it, 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 I think the biggest issue is the access to capital at some point, because obviously putting new fermenters in is expensive, and then financing that through the daily operation is not always easy. So yeah, it'll 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 continue to stay interesting, and I'm sure a lot more is going to change. But it's um it's, it's still fun. Yeah, uh, a marketing question. Yes, <laughs> uh, you can see a St. Louis Blues game on TV, and that'll be you'll see Urban Chestnut up there. You guys are a, are a sponsor, uh, and then also there's I've noticed some involvement early on, also with the upcoming MLS team in mm-hmm. St. Louis. So that's an unusual thing for a craft brewery to get involved in um, sports marketing. Uh, how did that come about and how's that been for you? Uh, some weird relationships that we didn't realize we had and uh, a lot of luck, I think, and conversations that lead to led to these things. Um, we don't spend a lot of money on, on any of these uh, sponsorships. It's it's relationships with, with people that we have had. Um, it, I think it, it helps definitely get your brain out there. There's an untapped market. The macro lager drinking uh, population is still it's still the majority out there and I think if we could if we can tap into that even just a little bit uh, there's a there's a huge opportunity to to grow our sales talking to these people and kind of trying to convince them that there's something else out there that is approachable and is not scary and and, uh, something they could try yeah and you can get a Zwickel at Bush Stadium too so you, you were really one of the first in the area to get craft beer into the ballpark there so and there's always the politics around that obviously yeah <laughs> bush stadium yeah yes yeah so you mentioned some interesting developments in loggers that you're excited about later this year is there anything that you could tell us about on that right uh, now n- n- not not quite yet it's gonna come <laughs> soon still but playing it's, it close to the vest well yeah we have uh yeah it's but it's it's definitely again on the on the, on the lighter side i think that's coming back to 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 my favorite beers it's sessionable it's going to be sessionable it's going to be something you want to drink on a 90 95 100 degree day in st louis tell me what you view as success for urban chestnut what does a success look like for you when will you know you all have achieved it and uh you know and what are the components of that success i think that's probably two-faced there's one that's personally important in regards to being able to uh, yeah, just kind of keep the bankers away and, and make sure that they're happy um, once, once, once we're at that point that's, that's, that's a success where it's a steady business um, we've grown so much over the last few years that over time you just have to implement certain rules and, and, and approaches and, and procedures and processes to make sure you're going to be able to run a successful business in terms of the financial aspect otherwise can't run a business right so that's that's part of it but to me personally the bigger thing is assuming that number one is 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 working out that you're respected in the community and by other brewers i think that's that's a big part of it if if other people come to us and say hey your beer is really good and we respect you for what you're doing we may not drink what you're making but we respect your approach that to me that's that that's success yeah yeah um Florian Coupland, thank you for joining us on the podcast. If uh, people want to learn more about Urban Chestnut, uh, where should they go find you? 
urbanchestnut.com is our website um if you are in st louis or in germany in uh, close to munich definitely stop by the brewery there that's a that's a fun place to be uh good good beer drinking uh, lots of hop fields great hop museum so from a beer perspective and lots of other interesting beer things around so we we um we're pretty open uh, give tours so just look us up or visit us what is uh, what's your favorite beer that you make uh, that everyone should try Ooh. if i that's now going to be a, a a division between two countries right <laughs> the, the hellas that we just released last year in, in germany that's really nice um as we're using a hop variety called saphir which is we hadn't really used that much before um my brewmaster there in Germany was really pushing for that, and we did some test brews and really turned out now. So that's that's a nice beer. At home here in St. Louis, home home is now the U.S. or has been for the last several years. Um, I, I do like Thrails, our uh, Russian Imperial Stout, in the winter for about a month or two. Um, but in the summer, Urban Underdog or Zwickel are definitely my my favorites. Lighter light, lighter lagers, yeah. Well, we'll go, we'll go check them out. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button to become a subscriber to the magazine. Second Kitchen provides the technology support, custom menus, and more, all at no cost to your brewery. SS Brewtech's team draws on strong, functional backgrounds. Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game, and GD Chillers is committed to cold. Uh, yeah, Florian, Joe, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.